As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Ed Jardini joins us now of Yardeni Research, the president and founder. Ed, can we start in this international story? Just start there. Just go a little bit deeper. What do you make of it? Just the rally we're seeing in EM, in base metals, in copper, and elsewhere too. Well, last year, uh, there was uh, a lot of talk about a recession uh, around the world. Um, We started out last year with a lot of concern that uh, if the Fed was in fact going to tighten and inflation was going to be persistent, uh, that uh, the U.S. might fall into recession. And there was a lot of chatter in the first half of the year when real GDP was down. But um, there was also a lot of talk about uh, Europe going into a recession because of the war in Ukraine and what that did to energy supplies in Europe. And then, of course, China has been struggling with another wave of the pandemic. So you put it all together and uh, the outlook was for last year for the global economy to be weak. Uh, now I think there's uh, the markets are s- signaling that uh, the plunge in natural gas prices uh, in, in Europe suggests that Europe may not have a recession after all. And now with uh, China abandoning the, uh, uh, the, the, the COVID policy, uh, opening up, uh, there's a perception that we may get a terrible wave of the pandemic for a few months, but then it should abate and China should open. So the outlook for the world economy, I think, is actually improving. So, Ed, are these trends you want to ride? The rally we're seeing in EM equities, the rally we're seeing in the miners in base metals? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Especially since uh, we started out the year or ended up last year with uh, sort of a consensus view that the market was going to go down and make a new low. The stock market in the US would make a, a new low by the middle of the year and then would provide opportunities uh, I think we made a low on October 12th uh, in the market. I think that was the end of the bear market. And I think we're uh, back in a bull market, not straight up, a lot of volatility. But I think uh, the, the markets are telling us yeah. that the world economy is improving. And you know, Torsten Slack moments ago at Apollo brings up the heart of it, the calculus, which you studied at Yale a few years ago. And the basic idea here is we've been fixated on the level of inflation Right. And now the market and the pundits and economists like you are switching to the first and second derivatives, the change of the movement, the dynamics of inflation. How does the Correct. Fed adapt to that focus and that change? Well, I, I think the Fed uh, recognizes and is embarrassed by the fact that they made a mistake at the end of 2021 and early 22, uh, that they uh, turned out to fall way behind the inflation curve. And I think they're trying to uh, make up for that mistake by possibly making another mistake. But uh, look, I don't uh, tell the Fed what to do. I try to anticipate what they're going to do. And right now, it certainly looks like they're going to do another 75 basis points, maybe in 25 basis points increments in the first half of the year. 
even <clears throat> though the data may suggest that that's really not necessary. And then they intend to keep it there at five and right. five, five and a quarter percent. Um, I, I have no problems with that, really. I, I think the economy is resilient. I, I'd love to go well, that's back a, to the, That's the to point the, here. You know, Ed, you're, you know, in your ute, Ed, we face this. So if we get up into the fivest range, and the key phrase from you, uh, Dr. Yadeni, is, and we stay there, there's a lot of punditry that the world will come to an end as we know it. Push against that. Well, that's that's, that's not my my style. I, I, I rarely think that the world's going to come to an end. And quite the opposite, when I see a lot of people talking that way, my contrary instincts come out. And <laughs> I, I think that uh, we may actually be uh, seeing a change from the uh, new normal of unconventional monetary policies, uh, ultra-easy monetary policies, that we had from 2009 to 2021, uh, back to the old normal. Uh, I, I it would be great if we could get back to kind of uh, an environment where interest rates are not zero, uh, where we don't have uh, monetary policy uh, buying bonds in bulk. Uh, and I think that's what we're what we're we're seeing. The, we're going back to the the old normal economy, which is able to grow with uh, reasonably. Uh, with reasonable interest rates. Zero is not a reasonable interest rate. And if that's the case, then that raises leadership questions. Where do you think that leadership comes from, both from a, a sector perspective and a geographic perspective as well? Well, uh, I, I think that uh, investors right now are, are in fact turning more optimistic about the global economy and they're looking for where values are still relatively cheap. And so we've already had a big run in China and now they're looking at, at Europe. Uh, I think it's uh, a diversified global portfolio makes sense here. I think the U.S. is going to do just fine. And uh, the leadership, I think, in the U.S. is going to be industrials uh, because there's so much money in the fiscal stimulus pipeline for infrastructure and semiconductor plants. And I think we also have onshoring. I'm looking at data showing manufacturing uh, structures, building of manufacturing structures is, is at an all-time record high in the mm -hmm. U.S., What's so turn it all together, and um, yeah. you know, I, I think you just diversify. What does trade do, Ed Yardeni? X minus M, given a Chinese recovery. What is the export dynamics and the import dynamics? Well, you know, where everybody t is talking about onshoring and production moving out of China back to the United States, or at least to Mexico and Vietnam. Um, the reality is the world hasn't changed that radically in the past couple of years. Uh, if the U.S. economy is actually going to uh, have no landing th this year, which which I think is a, a plausible case, uh, I would say that uh, it's it's included in the probabilities of soft landing, which I put at sixty percent. We can have no landing, and if wow. we have no landing, and the consumer continues to spend, that would uh, increase our trade deficit. Amazing how quickly this conversation has changed. Just to remind everyone, it's January eleventh. And we're already questioning we're deep into 2023. View. It's amazing. Ed Yardeni of Yardeni Research taking the other side of things mm. right now. Right now, Sarah May joins us now. Chief Investment Officer at Naveen. Thrilled she could uh, be patient as we go over the aviation uh, moment. Sarah, what's your confidence in your outlook? I would suggest certitude or confidence has been shattered in the 10 days of January. 
Well, markets and the Fed disagree on the outlook, but we expect markets to tread water until we get to two events this week, and that's CPI and earnings. Now, whispers are for CPI to be better than expected. We expect moderate growth as we see that continued shift from goods to services, lower auto prices, but consumers still keep spending. But is that enough to get the Fed to change their course? I don't think so. We still will see a long tail of a positive interest rate hikes and also a long tail of inflation. And then secondarily is earnings. What I am pleased to see is that earnings growth is expected to be flat for this quarter, and we are seeing margins decline, but revenue growth is still positive for the year. So right. the question is, if we go into a economic slowdown, revenue growth probably can't stay positive, and market valuations are pricing in a very optimistic scenario, and that's what makes me concerned about the rest of 2023. How do you allocate now? What is the gross allocation? I mean, the Nuveen Heritage is fixed income, but what is the allocation you choose to have right now? It is fixed income over equities because I think what you can get is more traditional equity-like returns in fixed income for lower volatility. A lot of that rate hike pain is priced into fixed income. I'm worried about equity earnings. I think they're still too high. We've not seen the impact of tighter monetary policy on earnings, on margins, and on that positive revenue growth that probably isn't sustainable. So I think fixed income looks better, take on a little bit more duration and risk there, and you can get high single-digit to low double-digit returns in quality areas like investment grade and municipal bonds. Sarah, are you more concerned about earnings in one sector over another, or is this pretty broad-based, pretty widespread? I think it could be widespread depending on the depth of the recession. If you look at earnings this year, it looks kind of similar to last year with energy leading and technology at the bottom. I think there's interesting areas within technology where you could see stronger earnings as we start to go through the cycle, the areas that are less cyclical. I still like software here. I think semiconductors could hit an inflection point this year. Uh, Kicking off later this week will be financials. That's an area that we're not incredibly positive on because of the capital's markets risk for these large banks. I like the regional banks over large banks. They're more protected and away from capital markets issues. Sarah, there's this massive cyclical story emerging off the back of China reopening. And Tom and I have been talking about all morning. I'd love your view on it. You've got a commodity market rallying, base metals, copper through 9,000. You've got EM equities back in a bull market. We talked about Europe at the top of the hour. European banks up more than 40% since the summer lows. They believe in this cyclical story at least relative to where we were several months ago. And Sarah, I'm wondering why that's not showing up at the long end of the bond market. Everyone's saying let's take on duration, let's look for those lower yields. But XUS, this market right now is not screaming recession. I think short term, you're going to get a rebound in a lot of these areas because of China reopening. I'd have questions over long term, the real economic growth of China and where we get to. Once we get past this bounce, China was kind of a sprung coil that it had you know, very poor returns for the last couple of years. And then finally, it started to pick up recently. Um, also, commodities, though, have another story, which is renewable energy. The amount of demand for areas such as copper and cobalt and nickel is also being driven as we shift to using more and more renewable energy. I expect the demand for copper to actually double by the year 2035. And if you look at the um, supply of copper, even in the US, we've been cutting supply for the last 25 years. So there's another metal story that's important. Energy has its own fundamentals. Demand has been strong for energy for a while. Supply has been tight. Our peak investment in energy was 2014. Producers are focusing on returning cash to shareholders. So the energy fundamental story remains strong with or without China. So that's a structural story. Can we just sit on the cyclical one a little bit longer? This is the question at the moment for us. Should we be pricing in a growth rebound off the back of China reopening or a growth slowdown off the back of all the tightening we've seen? Which one is it? I think that what I'm most worried about is the impact of tightening. You're getting right into the period where we're starting to see what this aggressive increase in rate hikes around the world does to the economy. I'm more worried about that and what that does 
versus China, which I think is, is a shorter term play, shorter term rebound as they get back to normal. But the overhanging main event of the year is going to be what amount of damage have global central banks done to the economy? Uh, what's holding us up here? It's the consumer and it's the employment markets. We're already seeing the consumer dip into their saving rates to keep spending. Uh, employment markets have not cracked yet, but if the consumer and the employment markets crack, I think that then is the recession story that you get and the unwind in revenue growth. And that would have told us that market valuations are too high right now. Sarah Malik and Nuveen. Sarah, thank you. Just brilliant. As always, Sarah Malik there and Nuveen. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. David Malpass, what I note here that's so important is the linkage into China. Your website shows the linkage of the World Bank into China. What is your knowledge of any China recovery? Hi, Tom and John. I was there in December. Uh, I think they were were just beginning to digest this uh, uh, coming off of the lockdowns. You know, the lockdowns were massive in China and changed the whole way people went to went to the factory and and uh, uh, got their got their groceries and and uh, it that changed almost overnight. And so the the uh, the the future still has to be worked out as they have infections of COVID spreading through China. Uh, one one outlook would be that they that they right. uh, digest it and then move into more production that would help the world. Another is that it takes them many many months to absorb it. So we'll have to see. We'll know more, I think, in a couple months right. on China itself. My my big worry, Tom, as you know, is there's the, the lack of investment going into developing countries. There's this big pulling back by the, those investors that were reaching for yield. Right. They're they're reexamining all of those investments, and that's a challenge. David, I would say in the history of the IMF and the World Bank, there is no single leader like you who's actually modeled and guessed economic growth. You and Terry Weissman and Emmy Shio years ago at Bear Stearns. Do you have confidence in the data out of China now that leads you to some form of cautious estimate of global growth? Uh, yes, the data coming out of China is is you know of of course it can be criticized, but I've made this point before. If you think of what a GDP number, real GDP for even uh, countries like right. the U.S. is a range of possibilities, and in China, same thing. Uh, and so it's clear that they slowed down quite a bit in the in the uh, third quarter and for, because of the lockdowns. They had a really massive lockdown. Remember going from Shanghai to Beijing. Uh, 
big production centers, uh, and so and those are coming off right. now. Uh, and so hard hard to know in advance how how much uh, acceleration there can be during 2023. Uh, it will help the world if they do. I, I feel like I'm talking to a market economist here, John. <laughs> MailPass is going to hang up and walk away. David, very seriously here, can a weak dollar save EM? I mean, if we get any form of metric moving strong dollar to weak dollar, does that assuage the, the worry that we have about emerging market finance? No. no. So I, I think the best for the world is to have the dollar be stable and then other countries try to have their own currencies be stable as well. That allows them to absorb new investment. So I'd be worried if, if we, for some reason, went into a weak dollar phase, uh, that that would reduce global investment. They'd be worried about what the future would bring. Um, we're, that's, I, that's not in our uh, outlook. If you say, might the, the, the euro and the yen has recovered some from very weak phase two, three, four months ago. That's that's good, and that softens the downturn of the of the outlook. Uh, but uh, uh, ideal would be if we can get a lot of new investment uh, into the countries that really need it. That's the countries that have big population growth or that have very low wages. They can use new tractors, new computers, new uh, machinery, cement making machinery, new bulldozers. Uh, and that's that's uh, uh, limited right now, especially in the poorest countries. David, I'd like to ask you a supply side question, if that's OK, just to wrap things up. We talked on China and I think everyone focused on the demand side. What's your base case, David? Are you thinking about the supply side seeing some relief or further dislocations off the back of this demand snapping back in? Uh, both. So as we look at the supply chains, they went through a really bad phase a year ago. That improved substantially, but then that disclosed other weaknesses within the supply chain. So, and China fills many of those. Uh, and as their factory production goes back up, as they get through COVID, uh, that that will help in certain areas. So I think we're going to see relief on some things. For example, uh, uh, fertilizer around the world that's been in really short supply. Uh, China is a major producer, uh, but in other areas, still these shortages because the capital's not flowing yet. And and the, uh, importantly in this is the asset repricing that has to be done after you've come off the 0% interest rate environment. 10 years at a 0% interest rate means you've got to work out the pricing of many assets. David Malpass at the World Bank. David, I think that forecast on global GDP got everyone's attention, including ours. Thank you, sir, for being with us. David Malpass there, the president at the World Bank. It is always good to speak to the gentleman from Arkansas. French Hill uh, has been a good friend of this show in explaining his view on Washington policy. And he has a nodding acquaintance with the FAA. French, I want to go back five years ago and you played local domestic politics by getting the FAA to commit to Little Rock and to commit to aviation away from what we talk about, which is Atlantic, Newark, JFK, and, and LAX as well. What is your confidence in the funding of the FAA right now? Are they underfunded, on target, or do we need to step it up? 
Well, Tom, John, good to be with you. I think the FAA has had robust funding. I think people know that we have the finest air traffic control system in the world. So I have no doubt they'll get to the bottom of this. And if they need assistance from either the executive branch or Congress, they'll be the first to speak up about it. We've had a great relationship in Little Rock with the FAA in helping us expand uh, economic development by working with our airport and changing uh, the location of their air traffic control cones. So look, I've got a great relationship with them and we right. stand by to help if we need to. I'll see how we get through the morning. You're trying to get through January, French Hill, as a Republican trying to get to February 1st. Our guests, and even within Bloomberg Surveillance French, there is a serious mystery to what we observed in a small group of Republicans versus an embedded GOP in the House. Describe right now the nascent relationship between the speaker, grizzled veterans like you, and the crew we heard from front and center a number of days ago. Yeah, it was a tumultuous week last week. It took 15 ballots to elect Kevin McCarthy the speaker, and that set a historic uh, record in the, in the recent modern history. But look, all along the way, Tom, there was a lot of attention to that 19 to 21 members who were holding out. But what about the 200 people that were consistently there saying, Kevin McCarthy's the best choice for speaker, and for many of them, he's the only choice for speaker. So that's what carried us through the week. And I'll say this, I think a lot has been made about what concessions did Kevin McCarthy right. give in order to become speaker. And in my view, they were not as dramatic as some of the news media coverage that I've seen. Do you know those concessions? Even this morning, there seems to be a mystery. I saw one relatively expert pundit say, look, it's all going to leak out eventually. Is French Hill aware of what those, those, myster those mysterious concessions are? Yeah, I am. I was one of uh, Mr. McCarthy's negotiators last week uh, with the holdout group. And <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. And the, the, uh, the agreement surrounds three things. First, the rules package, which there was only one change to the rules package that had already been approved by members of Congress on the Republican side. And that was the vacate the chair motion, a motion that's been in place since 1910. All speakers have faced a vacate the chair motion except for Speaker Nancy Pelosi. The second topic was uh, the budget. How do we control spending after the pandemic and after the Joe Biden spending spree? How do we go back to basic principles and reduce the budget deficit? And then the third and final category of things that we agreed to were to make sure that every voice in our Republican conference is represented on a committee. And that was essentially right. it. There is no secret agreement and everything that I'm aware of in that agreement has been made uh, public in our conference meetings or by press reports. Congressman Hill, I would suggest respectfully that, yes, there's been a Biden spending spree, but there was a Trump spending spree, and before that, another spree, and we're spree, spree, spree back decades. We're trying to find a rational fiscal path for this nation. Can that be as bipartisan as our actions on China? Boy, it needs to be, Tom, and I think you make a very good point. Look, the baseline for the Congressional Budget Office says we're going to have one and a half trillion dollar deficits for the next 10 years under those principal spending measures that Joe Biden authorized and asked for in the last two years. And it has been made worse. And I want to go back to the time where Republicans and Democrats both agreed yes. that budget deficits were bad. Well, OK, well, stop. We're bad. I, I've got just some yeah. a little bit of time left, French. How do we get back? to Scoop Jackson and HHH actually talking to Republicans. 
Well, we have a group, uh, I think our new budget committee chairman, Jody Arrington of West Texas, has got a group of 30 Republicans and 30 Democrats that are working on how do we get back to budget sanity. And I think that's a smart way to do it is have those individual visits. Congressman, we have to go, Tom. We have to go? We have to go. We have to go. the interview. I want to ask him about Georgia football. Is it like Alabama? You want to squeeze that in, all right? Go on. French Hill, this is really important. I mean, we know Arkansas is going to reign supreme. But just simple now, is Georgia the new Alabama in football? Boy, don't tell anybody from Alabama that. But everybody (laughs) had a red coat on here from Georgia. Y'all have a great day. French Hill, thank you so much. Congressman, thank you. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. David Rubenstein joins us now with Carlisle and, of course, host of Peer-to-Peer Conversations with a really important conversation made more important by the news flow in the Coinbase world. David, this kid is from Palo Alto. This kid is from engineering. He took one of the great double degrees in America, Rice University Economics and Game Theory, did all the right things, and his company is now falling apart. Well, I wouldn't say it's falling apart. The company is publicly traded. It did have a market cap that's probably about uh, 90% above what it is today. But the company has real revenue. Uh, The company is laying off some people. It's laying off 20% of its workforce. It previously laid off 18%. But the company is regulated by the U.S. government. The company um, is a very large uh, uh, company that that deals with uh, trading of uh, Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, and it has a real business, has real revenue, and it seems to be doing the opposite of what FTX did. It doesn't trade for its own account. It doesn't have its own coin that or token that it's created. So it's much different than, than FTX. Unfortunately, it's been hurt by the FTX uh, challenges. What is your take on this, then? As you talk to Brian in the news flow and the concentration that I as an amateur see with Binance as well, does he have a strategic ability to recover? Is there a Coinbase difference because of uh, Mr. Armstrong? Well, Brian is a very smart person. As you point out, he's, he's an engineer. His parents uh, were engineers as well and, and involved in computer software. He really is a very, very smart, highly focused person. He's built a very good company, which is now caught in a maelstrom, maelstrom of, of the, the problems of FTX. But I think his company is one that, that really does have real revenue. It does serve a real purpose. If you want to buy a cryptocurrency, you can do it through his company, and it's regulated by the U.S. government. It's a publicly traded company. Now, the stock has gone down a fair bit, but that's not unexpected. Mm-hmm. A lot of technology companies have gone down, and obviously a lot of crypto companies have gone down as well. David, did he speak of his future 
about his linkage to the underlying. I'm going to use the price of Bitcoin there from 50, 60,000 on down to a present 17,000. How critical is the price of Bitcoin for his operational path forward? I don't think the price of Bitcoin is as important as the volume. Having people go in and trade, whether price is higher or lower, is probably not as relevant to him, just like in NASDAQ or New York Stock Exchange. He's basically providing an exchange where people can buy cryptocurrencies, and it seems to be uh, you know, well-run. Clearly, right now, uh, he's now reducing headcount because volume is down a bit, uh, but I don't think it's a company that's just going to fall mm -hmm. apart. Um, it's much different than FTX. What is the opportunistic moment here for private investors such as Carlisle? I don't need you to give me the family jewels, but in this chaos, is there crypto opportunity? Well, uh, Carlisle is not a buyer of crypto-related companies, but I would say generally uh, the technology market is down 30 or 40% um, some of the leading companies in, from its, their peak. And therefore, if you are a value investor or if you want to buy some things cheap, now is probably a pretty good time. The best time to buy things, obviously, is when there's blood in the streets, as they say. And right now in the technology world, there has been blood in the streets and the crypto world has even been worse. But I think if you're a value investor and you look, really look at uh, buying things cheaply now is probably a pretty good time to invest in the tech world. David Rubenstein, I must take a moment here with critical headlines. FAA, nine minutes make it 10 minutes ahead of schedule. Federal Aviation Administration says normal air traffic operations are resuming gradually across the United States. The ground stop has been lifted. That just moments ago uh, from the FAA. We'll look for follow-up on that as well. David, you have public service in Washington. How is the FAA treated in Washington? I mean, it's not the Pentagon. It's not the State Department. But boy, is it something we use each and every day. Well, the FAA um, doesn't get as much money as it probably would like. And the system of, of air traffic control, which is different than the one we're talking about today, the overall air traffic control system, has taken a long time to, to fix and make more modern. So I think the FAA uh, could use a lot more support from Congress, a lot more support uh, generally from the public in terms of its need to modernize what it does. Remember the moment, David, years ago where President Reagan made a splash by standing up to union members up in towers trying to get us to land our planes? Are we scarred, still star scarred from that moment 40-some years ago where Ronald Reagan said to the flight controllers, no, you know, we're not going to back down. Well, Tom, you and I might be the only people old enough to remember <laughs> that, but that happened in the early 1980s when uh, there was a strike at the, yeah. uh, at the air traffic controllers and, and President Reagan fired all the air traffic controllers. The system continued to work. Um, that system uh, is now still dated a bit and we could use yeah. modernization, but I don't see any strike in the, in the yeah. imminent future. And I think that the way Ronald Reagan handled it probably dealt with that problem for quite some time. David, one final question and a statement, I guess, on the shift that we've seen at Bloomberg Surveillance just in the last four or five days. Do you and Carlisle, with all your re resources, do you believe in a Chinese recovery to 5 or 6% GDP, a, a renaissance of the Pacific Rim post-pandemic? I think it's a mistake to bet against the Chinese economy. 5 or 6% would be high growth because um, it's recovering, obviously, from the COVID situation. But I think counting out the Chinese economy is always a mistake. And I think people have underestimated the Chinese economy over the last 30 years have generally found out that they were wrong. David, thank you so much. This is going to be important. When they filmed this with Mr. Armstrong, it was supposed to be important, but now it is ever more important. David Rubenstein with Brian Armstrong of Coinbase.
This is important. Paul Sweeney and Tom Keene with someone who not so much has seen it all, but has a lot of the scars of the up and the down. His name is Douglas Cass with Seabreeze Partners as well. Doug, just as a general question, 6040 went down in flames last year. A bond market we've never seen. An equity market, yes, we've seen it, but pretty ugly as well. How does Doug Cass pick up the pieces after the December 31st hangover? How do you, what do you do on January 2nd to regroup? <laughs> well, uh, it was certainly a non-consensus year. Um, we entered last year with the overriding consensus view that stocks would continue the gain of 2021. Uh, to say the least, that was incorrect. It was quite um, uh, off mark. The overriding consensus as we entered this year was that the stock declines would be extended, something I disagree with in my first surprise for 2023. Uh, and so I, um, I think that we have basically um, what I describe as a chop bucket in 2023, a surprisingly strong first half, a surprisingly weak second mm -hmm. half. Do you invest with certitude if you extend out your time frame? If your new three-week trade is three months or your new three-month trade is 12 months, does that help? Well, I think the, the as I mentioned last time, as I was on with you and Paul, that the game of buying 30 stocks, buying hold them forever, um, going to play golf, trying to get some more assets under management with new pros prospects um, is over. Um, the game is changing. It's what uh, Howard Marks calls a sea change. Um, it's a paradigm shift. Uh, we're trying to recover from the biggest monetary bubble in modern history. And the unwind and transition in equity prices and monetary policy as we expected at Seabreeze, as came to pass last year, has been painful for most investors. Um, I consider I continue to see uh, formidable and still very market-unfriendly factors at work. But uh, to quote Vin Scully when he was talking about my cousin Sandy Koufax's perfect game in 1965, we're 12 months closer to approaching the promised land in, in which we could buy great companies at great prices, but for now, uh, we have a, a, a tempered view of, of, of 2023. Um, again, an up first half, a down second half. Because that's probably that's my biggest surprise. That's my really my biggest surprise. And that's for, uh, and that is year. certainly not consensus, Doug. As you're, I'm sure you're you're well aware. Most people feel like we're all kind of loading up for bear in the second half of the year. Yeah, I think um, you know. The purpose of my surprise list and the way I structure our portfolios, you know, I get a bum rap. I get a rap that I'm a short seller. In reality, I'm a contrarian. And so right now, most people are saying, hey, interest rates will start to maybe peak, if not start to come down in mid-year. And that's when you want to load up on risk assets, including stocks. But you're kind of saying it might be the I'm opposite. Just, I'm, I'm just at the, op the opposite, Paul. I, I see uh, a rapidly declining um, inflation rate vis-a-vis -vis consensus expectations. I even see some pressure off of wage inflation. I see defensive positioning on the part of CTAs, retail, and hedge funds. Um, very negative sentiment. Um, and uh, on the other hand, there are constraints to the upside. The biggest market obstacle, as I see it, um, is the sea change towards higher interest rates. 
And to me, the, one of the market's biggest challenges is the current level and difference of bond and note yields relative to the S&P dividend yield. Uh, that's one of the most serious challenges and headwinds to stocks. And it helps to explain why I think the right. S&P will be range-bound, which will be yeah. a big surprise. Uh, between 3,700 and 4,100, since we're at 3,900, we're basically um, um, a muddled value. Right. Um, so I, I see a, a number of restraints on the upside. There's a wide range of possible political, geopolitical, economic, and market outcomes, as well as financial conditions continue to ease. The more Fed, uh, the Fed will talk tough um, and act tough, and that's another restraining influence. And I think there's a nasty setup into late spring in Washington, D.C., with uh, McCarthy, Speaker McCarthy's concessions to the right wing of his party. Uh, I, I, Dan, I'm fascinated by your affinity at times for Amazon over the years. Do you look at the Amazons as the world as broken stocks? I mean, is, is profit-making, ginormous cash-on-balance-sheet tech, are they broken? I think all these companies, um, it was originally thought, if you remember, about six months ago when the um, Kathy Woods disruptive stocks were getting schmeist, uh, down 80, 90, 95% in certain cases, that it would be restricted to the um, non-earning tech companies. But as it turns out, we push forward sales, profits, and cash flow at even companies like Alphabet and Amazon and Meta. And so I think it's a transition year for them. If you're willing to, you know, we ladder based upon timeframes of our investments. If you're a long-term investor, I think Amazon um, should be in your portfolio. So, Doug, you've been at this game a long time, and you've witnessed, like many have, the, the, the development, the evolution of China, both as a market and as a source of you know, goods and services. We've got China reopening here, maybe faster than many people had expected. That kind of surprised a lot of people over the last month or so. What's your Again, that's call? in my surprise list, um, uh, that China would reopen far sooner than expected. Also, and this is coming to pass apparently in the next couple of days as consensus moves in this direction, that Europe's economic woes won't be as bad as um, originally surmised. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think the, you know, you take a look at some of the European markets and I know concern is out there for their recession, but you think right. things could right. in fact be all this, You know, as I mentioned um, to both you guys last week, I've been emulating my, my dear friend Byron Wing doing my surprise list for 21 years on the streets, premium site, Real Money Pro. And the core reason I do this list and look at things, con non-consensus outcomes, um, is, is really to seek, study, and, and embrace these low probability outcomes that I believe have a higher probability of occurring than the herd believes. Yeah. And I think, I think we learn over the years, at least I have a number of important and core lessons which I've learned uh, which form the foundation of the list. The first is that how wrong conventional wisdom can consistently be. The second is that uncertainty is going to persist. Thirdly, to expect the unexpected. And fourth, we seem to be seeing occurrences of black swan events growing with greater right. frequency. Hey, Doug, one of the biggest stories in 2022 is Elon Musk. Do you have a surprise for Elon Musk's storyline? Well, I, 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 I do. And, uh, but the, the real, okay, I'll give you this. Uh, first, before I talk about the surprise, I'll tell you what my surprise was last year. 
My surprise that would was that Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos would vie for the greatest loss of personal wealth in any 12-month history. Um, Spot on there. And um, that occurred. They each lost between 80 and $90 billion. This year, one of my surprises is that Musk reverses his decision to resign as CEO of Twitter, yeah. where he engineers an amazing recovery in sales and profits. But he resigns his position at Tesla as the company suffers from uh, a rapidly changing competitive landscape right. and broadening customer yeah. dissatisfaction, and that Tesla shares trade yeah. under $80 a share. But Twitter is taken public, and Musk's investment in Twitter is made whole. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Doug, Doug, where are you going to be February 26th? Are you going to see the Atlanta Braves against the ginormous New York Yankees? 33 spring days, training? 14 hours, yeah. 11 minutes, There's 7 seconds to spring training. <laughs> I look at the rotation. I mean, are the Yankees this year, is it finally Drysdale, Koufax, Padres? And Paranowski. Yeah. And Paranowski in the bullpen. Yeah, but I mean, I'm looking. Carlo, I, I, my, my favorite pitcher on the planet, Carlos Rodin. Good morning, Michael Givens, back with the Orioles. Carlos is pitching with Garrett. That's, that's well, you know, I also have... I, 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 in emulating Byron Wien, I also have five also-ran surprises. And my second surprise, also-ran surprise, is that the New York Yankees' Aaron Judge production didn't peak last year. Oh and he breaks okay. the all-time single-season home run record in 2023. <clears throat> and also, it's a Subway Series. Okay. In the seventh game, the Yankees defeat go. the Mets in the World Cast Series. Cass out front of the Subway Series. Go away. Yeah. Um, we were Red Sox <laughs> free there. Doug Cass of Seabreeze Partners reminding me that uh, there could never be anything like the Dodgers of another time. No. Place. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.